0: Welcome to the Smiling at the Future podcast. My name is Christy Rose, and this is my pursuit to glean practical wisdom on femininity, homemaking, finances, relationships, and singleness from the God-fearing men and women in my life. Hope you enjoy this journey with me as we learn to smile at the future. Hello, ladies. I am thrilled to share this discussion I had with Reagan Rose with you all. And I know it will give you that boost to your motivation that you need around this time of year to be living productively and redeeming the time. The impetus for this discussion is that Reagan recently published a book called Redeeming Productivity, and I highly, highly recommend you get your hands on a copy. You can also win a copy because we are giving away three of them on our Instagram page, so you can visit there to find out how to enter that giveaway. But in a nutshell, Reagan is looking at productivity from a Christian perspective Unlike so many other self help books that try and use selfish or worldly motivations for you to make the most of your time and your life. So here is Reagan to give us a dose of God honoring motivation. Welcome to the show, Reagan. I am delighted to have you here and just excited to talk about the book that you just published. But before we jump in, would you please share about yourself and where the Lord has you in life and
1: ministry? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's really exciting to be here with you, Christy. If your listeners don't know, we used to work together at Grace To You. So it's cool to get to reconnect and have a conversation. I run a ministry now called Redeeming Productivity, where try to help Christians get more done for the glory of God. So basically we attack the subject of personal productivity from a Christian worldview. I'm married. I have two children and a third is on the way at the end of this month. He's due. So we are on a full baby watch mode, but uh, we live here in Michigan now and focused full-time on redeeming productivity.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah, I was so excited when you decided to do that full-time. And yes, we work together, but we are not related, despite what people think (laughs) with our last names. (laughs) So no relation, but just happy to have you on. And I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I think I've been listening to it since you started it. How long have you had that?
1: I think I started late 2019, somewhere around that. So a few years now.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, I'll be linking that in the show notes for the listeners to go over and take a listen to all of the content that you've put together there. But your book is a really a culmination of all of your study and just really in the sphere of how to be productive as Christians. And I loved every chapter, I couldn't put it down. It's a page turner. I was inspired and encouraged by your solidly biblical approach to productivity. And the uh, tagline of your book is getting more done for the glory of God. And that is our desire as believers that our motivation would be to give God glory. But that phrase, we hear it all the time and we might not always understand what is the glory of God? What does it mean to give God glory? So could you share, explain what that means and how we can do that?
1: Sure, It, it really is one of those Words you hear all the time in church, and then when someone asks you to define it, you're like, "Well, yeah, I, to glorify God means to to glorify Him, right?" So it is one of those words that sometimes is is ill defined, and I think one of the challenges with it is when you talk about glorifying God, there's really two ways that that phrase is used biblically. One, speaking about the glory of God, is the glory that He has in Himself, right? Theologians call this His intrinsic glory, like God is objectively glorious he's praiseworthy it, it it all of his deeds his attributes the shining forth of those are his glory and so when we come along and say well how do I glorify God I can't add to his intrinsic glory that's speaking more of, of what is called ascribed glory it's really if you wanted to put it in a word it's about pointing. To God. So we do this, you know, on Sunday when we worship Him and we sing songs or in our prayers, when we're praising Him, we're ascribing, we're saying, Lord, you are glorious. But we also do it in all of our lives, all of our actions, our work, our attitude, all of those things were meant to be one giant flashing red arrow that points to God and just says, worthy. And and one analogy I heard somewhere a long time back, probably from a preacher, was that is it's like the sun and the moon, right? The God is like the sun, his glory, the shining forth, the light that comes from him is from him in and of himself. That's his glory. Well, in that equation, I'm like the moon. I don't have my own glory. I reflect God's glory, right? Just like the moon just reflects it lights up because it's reflecting the the sun. And so my job as a Christian is to, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, to let my light shine before others so that may, they may see my good works and give glory to my Father who's in heaven. I want people to look at my life and their eyes to bounce off of me and to Christ, who's the source of anything good in me and to say those good works, that those attitudes, those deeds, that's Christ at work in him so that he gets more glory. He's magnified by my life. So that's, in a very verbose way, <laughs> that's that's what it means to glorify God. Your your life is pointing to him.
0: I loved how you broke that down. And I really like the analogy of the moon because it just makes it very tangible. And we understand that, that, yeah, everything we have, anything good in us, any gift skills, it just comes from the Lord. And we reflect right back to him, who he is and his greatness and goodness so we are just reflectors and that's just such a privilege to reflect the king of the universe.
1: And you had asked how productivity was tied to that. And I guess I didn't really answer that, but that, that is just it is if my mission in life is to glorify God and even, you know, some of the old confessions, like the Westminster short of catechism, you know, begins, the first question is what is the chief end of man? It's to to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Like. That's your chief end is your main purpose. If that's my main purpose, I reason, I want to do that as well as I possibly can, right? If if I know my my mission in this world is to bring God glory, I want to be as productive as I can in that mission. So it really is the the origin, the starting place for Christian productivity is I want to live a God glorifying life. Okay. Now, how do I do that as effectively as possible? And that leads you down into spiritual disciplines, but I I argue that also leads you into a desire to, to practically be productive with your time, be effective with it as well.
0: That's so solid. So a lot of us can have a misconception about what it means to be productive. And maybe the industrial evolution has something to do with this, where we just think our output, we're kind of like machines, we just have to produce all of these results. But in your book and in the passages you bring up in the discussion, you talk about how as a Christian, our productivity looks more like a tree rather than a machine. Can you flesh that out a little bit and explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think some of it comes from if if you are into personal productivity, you read secular books on productivity, you, you have to recognize that the the thoughts and a lot of the concepts that are sort of talked about in in personal productivity books come they, they descend from the industrial revolution right like i we're just outside of detroit right here and we go um, a lot of times to the henry ford museum which isn't far from our house and they have like an exhibit there that shows the assembly line uh and how henry ford set those up and they had switched basically from this mode of producing cars. It was called the, I think they called it the craftsman method, where basically just a bunch of guys who knew everything about the car would walk around it and slowly build a car to the assembly line. I think most people know this. That's what really what made Ford take off is they optimized everything. They specialized every set of the of the process of building a car to make it as efficient as possible. And so this whole idea of factory management is is productivity how do you maximize the outputs with as little inputs as possible how do i make it cheap and as fast as possible so that i have more outputs the problem is modern productivity is descended from this notion and so even though we've translated it into the world of knowledge work right a lot of us work in offices we work with our minds instead of our hands a lot of the the analogies we use and the metaphors we use to talk about productivity are mechanical. And, and I think this is actually a bigger problem than it might sound like, right? I, I even like, I often fall into this where I'll say, I'll use like a computer analogy and say, uh, talking about my capacity, how much uh, I'm able to do something. I'll say, my bandwidth, I don't have enough bandwidth to do that, right? Or um, enough space on the hard drive or or things like that. But the, the problem is, scripture does talk about productivity and it talks about it using organic metaphors instead of industrial runs, obviously. So one of the things I point out is what do you call the section in your grocery store where you buy fruits and vegetables? What do you call that? The produce section. Right. Yeah. And it's it's because it's what is produced from a tree. And for you know centuries, farmers, agrarian societies have referred to the productivity of their fields, of their animals, right? An an apple tree that bears much fruit is very productive. And that's the way the scriptures talk about productivity. It's an organic thing. It's not about tweaking the right knobs. It's not about optimization. It's actually more about connection and cultivation. And so even you read in John 15, you know, the famous passage where Jesus says, I am the true vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Bear much fruit. That sounds like productivity to me. And it is. We we as Christians, we want to bear much fruit for Christ. He says, okay, how do we do that? I abide in him. I focus on that connection to the true vine. I walk closely with the Lord. I let him work through me. And that's a lot different than just trying to figure out which knobs I need to turn. How do I squeeze in, you know, 10 more minutes into my day? It's a completely different paradigm when you think about your productivity in terms of. Organic. It's a tree that's growing, and not a a factory that needs to be managed.
0: I loved that you brought out the John fifteen five passage, and the other verse coming to mind is in Psalm one. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and our fruit. I mean, it talks about. Our spiritual fruit is what is produced through abiding in Christ. And He is the power source. You bring that out so many times throughout the book of like, we can do nothing on our own. It's not our own strength and and gifts. It's only through His power enabling us to produce this kind of fruit that is pleasing to God, that has the right motivations and all of that. It's not just our own willpower um, and our own strength. Okay, so... Taking this down a little more to a practical how-to level, you're a big proponent of maximizing, using, utilizing your morning time. And you have a course on morning routines. Can you share a little about that and maybe just how it's impacted your own life and give us some tips for how we can use the first fruits of our day, our mornings
1: well? You know, people often ask me like what is the where do i start what's like the one thing i could change to kind of get maximum leverage on trying to get my my productivity under control trying to get a little bit more organized and i always say start with your mornings because in my experience that was really a turning point in my life about 10 11 years ago i I, I got married eleven years ago and my wife and I decided to make the commitment that we were always going to go to bed at the same time, you know, barring some extenuating circumstances. The problem was my wife sleeps a long time. <laughs> she sleeps like <laughs> nine, nine and a half hours is a full night of sleep for her. Oh. <laughs> and I don't I I can't sleep that long. And so when we started to go to bed at nine, nine thirty, I started waking up at four thirty, five in the morning. And I didn't know what to do at this time. I really, like I was like, okay, I got to watch TV. I, I don't know what to do. And then it hit me one day, wait a minute, this is a gift. Everybody's searching for more time. Everybody's searching for focused time, right? Where you're not distracted. And all of a sudden I'm awake and nobody else is. Uh, what can I do with this? And so I just started testing different things I could do in my mornings. You know, Obviously, devotion, spending time in prayer, but then trying to think about what what could I do to be more organized in in my life and make a plan for the day? What about exercise? And so I started working and doing experiments over probably the last 10 years. I'm still experimenting with it and changing things. And, And then working with people through Redeeming Productivity, I found time and again, people have the same testimony. They start doing a morning routine and they're like, whoa, everything changed. So basically, why why mornings? I think of this, one aspect of it is your mornings are sort of the first fruits of your day, right? You have the Old Testament concept of first fruits that people would bring to God, the first fruits of their harvest, that it was the first and the best that yielded from what they made. And the idea was it was this acknowledgement that all of it really belongs to you, Lord. But I'm bringing you this first and best as a, as a gesture to show that, yes, this belongs to you. And I think that we should think that way about our days too. When you wake up, the, it, it, what you do first, I really do think has an impact on the rest of the day. Most of us, what we do, we reach for our phone, we check something, we get on email, we get stressed out, we get on social media, and we just go down this entertainment rabbit hole. That's a terrible way to start your day, honestly. Better I think, to have a plan. How do I utilize these first fruits of my day? And and I really do think most people can do this. Uh, maybe we don't want to, but I think we can, if we're serious about it, move our bedtime back a little bit, go to bed a little bit earlier so we can wake up a little bit earlier. So we're not just rushing out the door, getting ready for the day and just getting in the car and going to work. But we're we're being intentional with, how do I spend the first 15, 30 60 minutes of my day and so I have a a paradigm I go through these five elements that make for a good morning routine and it follows the acronym power. so P is for prayer spending some time in prayer when you first wake up. O is for organize and that means just making a plan for the day what are the what are the three things I want to get done? when am I going to do them today? Uh, what's coming up on my calendar? W is word like the word of God reading some in the word, following a Bible reading plan or studying something exercise. Doesn't mean you have to do a full workout, but just do something to get the blood going, kind of orient your body towards the day. And then the R's is, is reading and writing, like doing some journaling, reading in another book that you're trying to get through. And, and I've just found that when I'm doing that consistently every morning, it it is incredible because all these habits sort of stack on top of each other. You're hitting all these major areas of your life. You're hitting your spiritual life. You're hitting your 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 mind with, with planning the day ahead, with um, reading, writing, and even engaging your physical body. It's like when you do this, you start the day ready. And it's this incredible feeling that before even a lot of people have woken up. You've already accomplished so much. you've already set your your thinking right, where your focus is on God, your focus is on how do I serve him with the day that's coming, how do I utilize my time well. I just it's it is like a superpower <laughs> and I, I could not speak highly enough of having a morning routine. I know it's a sacrifice, but like I just encourage people to try it for a month, make it a challenge to try setting up a morning routine like this for a month and just see how it changes your life.
0: Love the emphasis on meeting with the Lord at that time. And I think, I just think about how God gives grace to the humble. And you just, that's such a sign of humility when you come to the Lord, needing His strength and help for that day, putting Him first. And you'll get more grace, I think, throughout the day. And you're going to start, I think, in a better frame of mind instead of hitting snooze 20 times and rushing out the door all frazzled. I mean, what that's going to, yeah, just make you more confident and settled and peaceful as you move through your day when you can get those things started in a a correct way. One of the quotes that I love from your book, Reagan, um, you said, the Christian's morning routine should not begin with speeding up to meet the workday, but rather slowing down to meet with God. And yeah, and I also appreciate how you said, you know, you're, that means you're gonna also have to go to bed earlier to get your sleep and I'm a, a early to better I'm in bed by 9 pm yes I, I'm a little bit of a grandma in that way but and yes you know it does sometimes hamper some social activities it seems like just a lot of things tend to be late but a lot of people know that I'm early to bed so they they try to coordinate things earlier I'm more of a brunch person I'm like hey sign me up for brunch <laughs> not for a movie at 9 p.m. But another thing that you talk about in your book um, that I thought was really interesting is you talk about how Christians specifically have an unfair advantage in being productive. And I would love for you to explain to me, to the listeners, what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, you know, I've, I've read other productivity books by Christians and always glean helpful things for them, but... A lot of times, I think when Christians talk about productivity, we just kind of take like whatever the advice is that the world has, which a lot of it's really good. There's a lot of good common grace wisdom in how tips and tricks for squeezing more time out of your day. How do you stay organized? How do you set goals? Like I, I talk about all that stuff too. But one things that I think we can miss is that if we have a biblical mindset about productivity, we we need to recognize we have things that the world does not have if the object of our productivity is to glorify God, lead, lead lives that are fruitful for him, we have an ally in the Lord of the universe, and he's given us several really amazing things that the world doesn't have that's better than to do list, better than a, a good goal-setting framework. One of them is prayer, which is, is probably the most neglected of the spiritual disciplines, if we're all being honest. But you can draw on the power of the almighty to help you Set your priorities right. He he says this in James that if we ask for wisdom, he will give it to us. He we talks about committing your plans to him, right? We can ask God for heavenly aid to live lives that are pleasing to him, and we can have confidence that we're we're asking things according to his will. If if our aim really is to glorify him and be fruitful, we can pray with so much confidence that he will supply the power to do that. And I just think that's so overlooked. Uh, even from folks who are into productivity, even from Christians that are into productivity, we miss that, man, we have this incredible advantage. Another one, of course, is the, the local church, the, the community that God has given us to help us be fruitful. Um, this is not a solo mission that we're on, right? We're in it together and we're more fruitful. we bring God more glory when we do this in the company and finding our place in, in a local church. And a big part of that is, taking full advantage of our spiritual gifts that he's given us. He's He has empowered us to be fruitful in specific handpicked ways. And that is a very big, uh, quote unquote, unfair advantage that we have.
0: Yeah. And the two passages that you brought out in that po- portion of the book, Philippians 2, 3, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's the Lord working in you spiritual gifts. So I would like to take that thought a little bit further. People are sometimes unsure. How do I find out what my gift is? And yeah, I would just love to hear your thoughts on how people can identify their spiritual gift. And then why is it essential that we are proactive in using those spiritual gifts?
1: Yeah, I think one place to start with this is God, he He hasn't put us on like a a holy scavenger hunt, right? Like he he intends for us to know what our giftings are. And so that's one thing to start with. It's not some some mystery you need to go on like a <laughs> a quest to go find, right? But yeah, we are unsure. And so I, I think I just say that to say, we can have confidence that when we seek out to be faithful to God and find how he specially equipped us, we can be confident. He, he's in it with us. He wants us to know that. He's not trying to keep it from us. So a couple of things you can do. There are these like, tests, like a spiritual gift inventory test. Some people have found those more helpful than I have. I I find them of limited utility, but they do help in the regard of making you aware of the spiritual gifts. So I would start there, not with a test necessarily, but reading the passages on spiritual gifts or finding an article that sort of summarizes the different key passages that talk about the different gifts, so you know what they are, so you know what to look for in your life, right? It's not just like one of the spiritual gifts isn't flight, unfortunately, but like so people need to know what they actually are, so they know to look for. But the the second thing is pray. I mentioned before, and James talks about praying for wisdom. Again, God wants you to know what your gifts are. Ask Him, Lord how how have you equipped me? How have how have has your Spirit handpicked? what you would have me be fruitful in and and God wants to show that to you but mostly it happens you discover your spiritual gifts through trying through serving in your local church the primary sphere for the spiritual gifts is in the serving of one another in the in the local church that's what God designed them for so try out different things in your church don't just be a consumer volunteer for different things. And what you'll find is that other believers will begin to affirm certain things in you. They might say, "Oh, you're very gifted in administration," or "Wow, you you just have such faith," or "Look, you're you're gifted to teach." Even myself, when I was in middle school, it was a it was my junior high pastor really kind of twisted my arm to like give my testimony in front of the group. And then eventually he's like, "Do a short devotional." And it was through that That I discovered that I was gifted to teach. I wouldn't have known that, right? Except there's, there's, you wouldn't know, except that you tried it and other people affirmed it in you. And so there is this very natural way that God uses the local church to help us discover our giftings. And as those become more clear to you, and as you recognize, here's some unique ways that God's equipped me, recognize that you do need to be proactive with it. You, if you are part of the body of Christ, and and this is an amazing thing that I don't think we think enough about is each local church and God's sovereignty and his providence, he brings people there with specific sets of spiritual gifts to serve that body. And so when we are not using the gifts God's given us in our local church, something's missing. We're like a piece of the puzzle that's not there, a piece of the machine that's just not functioning. And so we need to be proactive because in as much as we speak about stewardship as being like, oh, we need to steward our money, what more important thing do we have to steward than a spiritual gift that's been handpicked by the Holy Spirit for us especially to use in the context of our local church? And so once you know it, don't be shy. Obviously, don't be a bully, but don't be shy about going to your elders or deacons or whoever runs different ministry that you you think you might be equipped for and and saying, hey, I, I think that the Lord has gifted me in this way. Is there a way I can serve in this area? And seek those things out. Don't just wait around and say, no one ever asked me to do anything. Be proactive. Don't waste it.
0: So good. And I also appreciate how you brought out in the book that it's a process. This is not just something that you like wake up one day and I'm like, oh, I have the gift of encouragement. Better use that. So it might take some time to get there but yeah as you as you explore this as you try different opportunities as you're affirmed by people in your church that'll just solidify more and more where you should be focusing your efforts within the local church another thing that you mentioned in the book which I thought was interesting is how your spiritual gifts can apply even outside of the local body I mean that's your primary focus and and where you're supposed to use them would you be able to talk a little bit about how it can help just in all areas of your life?
1: Yeah, so this is something that I I don't know how widespread that this this notion is, because the, the scriptures do specifically talk about using your spiritual gifts in the context of a local church. But my sort of hypothesis is when you view the Christian life holistically, you think all the way back to, you know, the created in the image of of god you know called to be be fruitful multiply fill the earth to subdue it to this this mandate to utilize all of our lives for god's glory it does seem to follow to me that the unique ways that god has gifted us would also impact i think even naturally without us even trying impact our work and even the vocations we are most suited for so For example, you mentioned the gift of encouragement. If you're gifted in encouragement, doesn't it follow that you would be especially suited not just to use that maybe in a greeting ministry or church, but also maybe in some sort of a customer service role or a hospitality type situation that there'd be be certain jobs and vocations that would be very suited to those gifts and which you can use those spiritual gifts to honor the Lord even outside of the church and still fulfill that calling of glorifying him because you're, you're showing forth an aspect of what God is like through the way that he's gifted you even outside. The church,
0: yeah, really helpful perspective, and I think as you brought out in the book, this also can help you filter decisions in your life, especially in the area of of jobs. I mean, that's a lot of what this audience the. Uh, that you're speaking to a lot of us our jobs are a big part of our life and so how do you decide what to do with your life and how to what vocation to pursue so that can narrow some of that down which is so helpful when we can filter things and um and kind of yeah take that from a broad spectrum down to a simpler one okay so next question here i'm a big fan love goal setting making goals i Every New Year's, I make this a big priority in my life, and I try to re- revisit it on like my, my birthday and other points throughout the year. Um, but not everybody is a fan of making goals, <laughs> but um, and I think New Year's goals kind of get a, a bad rap from people. But can you share why, as Christians, it's so vital for us to be intentional and set goals in our lives? And do you have tips for how we can do this and actually stick with them and be effective?
1: Yeah, I, I'm really big on goal setting too, because I find it so helpful to me. But it does, it does get a bad rap. And I think part of it, I'll address this two ways. Part of it is a lack of understanding of how to set a good goal. So a lot of people that you know you fall off the wagon on a New Year's resolution. Some of that is related to just not knowing how to set and keep an effective goal. But I think for Christians, there's another layer to it that makes us hesitant. And that's that some of us kind of harbor this notion that, is it even right for me to be setting goals, right? Because goal is is very closely related to ambition, right? And we're like, well, doesn't the Bible say, shouldn't we not be like ambitious? Like, isn't this kind of messed up for us to be making goals for ourselves? Shouldn't we just kind of let go and let God, something like that, right? So I think that it is true, biblically, that vain ambition is wrong. That's what's condemned in scripture, right? The vain ambition, self-glorifying ambition. But if we consider goals as a way to glorify God, or as I put it in the book, the goal of goals is the glory of God, then we can see setting effective goals, having holy ambitions are actually a vehicle we can use to live more God-honoring lives, right? And so a lot of times with our goals, we are purely self-focused, right? So a lot of people like new speaking New Year's resolutions, people will talk about a lot of times it's fitness goals. I can't remember what percentage it is, but most New Year's resolutions are either financial or fitness related. And a lot of times the reason behind that is, well, I want to get in shape so that you know people will look at me. So I'll have more confidence. So it's a lot of this me, me, me stuff. And it's not, it's not complete. Those motivations, you know, can be part of the equation, right? I don't think it's necessarily wrong, but All of your goals should have reference to how does this make me better glorify God with my life, right? There can be spiritual goals related to your spiritual growth, but also even goals that are seemingly unspiritual, even like fitness, you can subsume those under this chief mission of glorifying God and and reshape those and think, okay, my fitness is part of me stewarding this body God's given me for his glory so that I can be a sharper instrument in his toolkit so I can be more effective so I can be healthier and I think there's wisdom in that so so I would say this do have goals just don't have arrogant goals that's what's condemned in scripture you know James again talks about come you say who uh next week will will go to such and such a town and make trade and do profit right i'm paraphrasing here i'm not like so i'm probably misquoting but He says, no, that such boasting is evil. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will go to such and such a town and make trade and make profit, right? His point was, you have to hold your goals with an open hand. He doesn't condemn them making the goals. He condemns the attitude those guys had. There was nothing wrong with them saying, we'll make trade and make profit. He said, but what they should have done is said, I'm committing these plans to the Lord. I'm going to hold them with an open hand. So that I think for for Christians, I would hope people would take away, you can set goals, you should set goals. The apostle Paul um, had goals. And when you do it, just do it in humility that perhaps... Very often, God's plans are better than your plans and be open to, sometimes your plans are going to get scuttled and that's a good thing. But with regard to the other side of the equation, the actual specifics, how do you set a good goal? A lot of times our goals are really more of just a wish. So I I like to use the the fitness thing, but you say, okay, I want to lose 10 pounds. And you say, I set a goal of losing 10 pounds uh, as my New Year's resolution and I didn't do it. So New Year's resolutions don't work. It's like, friend, (laughs) you can't just say I'm going to do a thing and then not make any plan to do it and say, okay, New Year's resolutions don't work. All you did was make a wish. (laughs) Goals work when they're specific. You make a definition of done. You decide what exactly do I mean? what does it mean to lose 10 pounds? And how am I going to get there? How do I make a plan to get there? What's the deadline? What are the habits surrounding this? Actually build this thing out into a plan that you can follow. That's how you set a good goal and then keeping it visible, constantly referencing that goal. And of course, part of that is, um, as you define it, is defining it in respect to how this helps glorify God. That actually, one of the neat side effects of that is when you set goals and you've written down how it's gonna glorify God, that provides the ultimate motivation to keep doing it. Because <laughs> you're like, I'm doing this as part of my my chief end. So um, I it's often been said that a goal without a plan is just a wish. And I think that's the practical side of it is you've gotta attach a plan to your goal and then you're gonna be a lot more successful.
0: Yes, yeah, I totally 100% agree with that and i really like how you bring out how when you when motivation inspiration strikes harness that to help you build a plan don't just be like okay i'm going to the gym right now i got motivation and then you know that's where it, where it dies after that one day but you take that energy and you make a plan so that on the days when you're feeling less than motivated you still have a plan you still can follow that through and build a habit from that to achieve that goal so in in the scriptures god uses heavenly rewards to motivate us in this life but i know some people can feel like oh is that is that self-centered like how do how do we rationalize that as a good motivation for living the christian life well
1: yeah this is like my hobby horse, <laughs> the idea of having, having the reward. I was listening to a podcast just this last week with Kevin DeYoung and he was quoting someone else, but he, he said something about like every author only really writes one book just over and over again. And I definitely see this as being my own trajectory is I keep writing books about eternal reward being like a positive motivation. Like I wrote a book on video game addiction and like Christians, and I've, I have another one coming out this summer that's about actually about stewardship and the parable of the talents and goes more into that. And especially that, that whole paradigm of well done, good and faithful servant and how that's a positive motivation. But this is like my favorite topic because we're missing something so vital in the church today. This is so underemphasized. The fact that, we, in scriptures, are presented unashamedly with the motivation of eternal reward as being a positive thing for us to pursue. So I talk about this in the book because this is what it's all about is when we glorify God, it's not disconnected from our highest good. John Piper talks about this a lot. I like piper. there's there's certain things i'm I'm not on the same page with him on, but I think he hits the nail on the head when he gets into this thing about our highest good is tied together intrinsically with God's glory. And I think one way of coming at this is to think about it like this. Heavenly reward as a motivation is the stuff of faith. It is what faith is all about. And what I what I mean is when we talk about faith in God, there's there's two big components to it. There's faith that, that God is, who he is, right? But there's faith in the promises of God. And I think we forget this, that the the Christian life is lived by faith. We walk by faith. What do we walk by faith in? In the promises of God. What does that mean? The things that God has told us are true. And so part of that is the temporal aid that he gives us while he's here. Part of that's looking back to the cross, but a major emphasis in the New Testament, especially is the promises that our good works will be rewarded in heaven. And so you can see why when it gets to that point, you know, Protestant Christians, we get kind of like itchy. We're like, ah, oh, this that doesn't sound right <laughs> to be re- rewarded for good works. No, it's not about salvation. Our salvation is based on Christ, on his merit, his good works, and his perfect sacrifice. We're, we are justified by faith. It's not according to works. But the New Testament goes out of its way to say that there is a positive motivation for good works in that we will be rewarded for them as Christians. And those things are not at odds with each other. I think the best place you see this actually is in Hebrews 11, right? The hall of faith. So, this passage goes through all these different saints of old and talks about their great faith. And they're presented to us as this example, this cloud of witnesses that we look to that that encourages us to, to also live by faith in this life. But to a person in that list, it talks about their faith being in eternal reward. That they, they were like, think of uh, Abraham. Why did he leave Ur of the Chaldees? Why did he leave his family? It says he left them because God promised he was going to make of him a great nation. He was going to bless him. He did it for the reward. Moses, why did he leave the pleasures of Egypt? Why did he exchange them, the pleasures of Egypt for the sufferings of Christ, it says. He was looking unto the reward. And then it goes on to say that the, those people didn't see the reward in this life. It was an eternal thing. It was something that they will receive eventually. And then Hebrews eleven six, six, even defining faith says, without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must two things, believe that he exists. That's kind of table stakes for faith. You gotta believe that God is. And that he rewards those who seek him. Part of faith is believing that God keeps his promises to reward us for seeking him. And so when we talk about, but it does seem kind of mercenary, right? It does seem a little bit messed up to be like, but shouldn't I just do it purely like out of an altruistic desire? Like I, I want God to be glorified. Isn't that enough? I love Christ, therefore I serve him. But I think what we forget is our own satisfaction is not necessarily, it's not at odds with, our chief end of glorifying God. Because selfishness is really, or self-centeredness, it's a lack of consideration for others. If we say, isn't that selfish? Selfish or self-centeredness is talking about being so self-focused, you're excluding others. You're operating chiefly for your own personal profit or pleasure. I think one of the amazing things, and and this can only come from, from God's divine wisdom, is this economy whereby Our motivation is completely entangled. Our um, eternal good is completely entangled with our glorifying of God and serving of others. That when we serve him faithfully, when we set his glory as our highest end, when we serve others with the right attitude, according to his empowering, we are rewarded by grace in heaven for that. And we don't have to put on this Phoney, kind of sanctimonious altruism be like, I'm only doing this out of a desire to serve the Lord. There's nothing i I get out of this. No, Christian piety recognizes that the more we serve, the more we go out for God, the more we even forsake the pleasures of this life, it honors him because we show him to be a God worth trusting. when Moses disregarded the pleasures of Egypt and instead chose the sufferings of Christ that evidenced that God was a god worth trusting that his promises are sure and true and when we trust in God's promises for eternal reward there is this amazing thing that happens it, we we glorify him we get our highest good which is which is eternal blessings and we serve others from a true heart those things those things it's like this virtuous circle God has not made our eternal destiny separate from our chief end of glorifying him. They're they're perfectly congruent with each other. They're coextensive.
0: That's powerful for us to realize and to motivate us to give us the right motivations and to not be ashamed of doing things for eternal rewards. He looks at our heart as well as what we're producing in the fruit and rewards us for those right motivations as well and they all come from him anyway so we can't take credit
1: <laughs> right well and it it's such a it's such a bulwark against sort of like hypocrisy as well right remember when jesus is talking to the pharisees and he tells them you know if you do this you do these things for the praise of men you have your reward like you got you got a good job everyone clapped for you you have your reward the opposite of that is, but you, you, why didn't you do it for me with the right attitude and the right heart so that you would receive a much better reward? Um, or even when it, it talks about generosity, that the one who gives in secret is rewarded in secret, right? It, it has this purifying effect on our motivations it saves us from sort of religious hypocrisy when we recognize that our reward comes from Christ and we're waiting for it and the things we do in this life we're not just in a waiting room for heaven it actually matters what we do here and even our eternal destiny not heaven or hell but our estate in heaven is tied in some way to the the faith wrought works we do in this life it's it's just it's everywhere in the bible and it's it's crazy to me that it's underemphasized <laughs>
0: Yeah. Oh, It's it's crucial that we understand that, Reagan. I so appreciate you breaking that down and helping us wrap our mind and heart around it. We are just, I feel like, just barely skimming the surface of this topic of your book, of your study. So I know the listeners are going to want to go and take get a copy of this. I'm going to link your book in the show notes for them to do that. And you give a lot more specific just examples and ideas of how you can live productively as a Christian, how you can maximize your skills and gifts and just do that wisely, how to walk wisely in this life. So definitely want the listeners to to go and take a look at that. But do you have any other resources you would recommend if someone just wants to grow in this area of their lives? Where would you direct them?
1: Yeah, a couple of book recommendations. One is Do More Better by... Tim Chalice, chalice.com, the, the Christian blogger. That book, it's older now. I think it's around 2015. It's very practical. It talks about these four systems you can set up for your life to manage in your tasks and very much a God-glory focus. So Do More Better is a good one I always recommend. There's a newer one called Redeeming Your Time by Jordan Rayner. Also very practical. I don't think I can agree with all of the conclusions he has on the from the biblical side of it, but it's probably one of the best primers on like the best of even secular thought on productivity and being efficient with your time and what tools you need um, while also couching it in a Christian worldview. So I check those out. And then I have a bunch of stuff on my website and redeemingproductivity.com. Probably the, the best thing people could grab is I have a morning routine planner that's free. If you just go to redeemingproductivity.com slash morning, there's a PDF you can download and it literally walks you through how to build out one of these morning routines. And it gives you little worksheets. You can print these off and use them to plan your day and your devotions. It's got Bible reading plans, all that spaces for all of that. So if people want just one thing to start with and they're intrigued about the morning stuff, just go to redeemingproductivity.com slash morning.
0: Okay, that's excellent. And I have a feeling it'll be coming out with an app one of these days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's Is that the in the works or <laughs> yeah, it's it's in the long-term plan, Lord willing.
0: Okay. Well, Reagan, if you could say one thing to people that are in the season of singleness, a lot of the listeners fall into that category. How would you exhort them to be living in this unique season they're in?
1: I'm sure that you hear this all the time, Paul's exhortation to singles in 1 Corinthians 7, but thinking about it in the context of productivity, you know, he basically says, those who are unmarried have the the privilege and the gift of undistracted freedom to serve Christ. You can do things in this season of life that people who are, are married, people who have kids or even retirees cannot do. And I would just encourage you not to overlook that gift. It's it's so easy to focus on, well, what's the next phase and all this, but look, here's where you are. This is what God has for you. Lean into that. I think back on my single days and how much time I wasted and how much I didn't understand what a amazing season it was for doing good for God's glory. Lean into it, take advantage of it. Seek to maximize the season of your life for God's glory because it, it is a blessing.
0: Wonderful. I love that verse. It's kind of my anthem verse, that undistracted devotion to Christ. And our goal should be from moving from victory unto victory moving through each season, maximizing the opportunities, serving the Lord well, embracing what his plans are for you as you move through life and are a faithful steward of what he's given you. Regan, so appreciate you coming on. Excited to share this conversation with others. And I'm inspired even more to set more goals, to be purposeful with my time and with my life and opportunities God has given. So thank you for fresh inspiration on that front. And yeah, just encouraged to see how you are using your unique gifts for the Lord and to help Christians understand these concepts better and to live well and to walk wisely.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, Christy. It was such a joy to get to talk to you about these things.